Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, I really wanted to remind myself that people are generally good and want to help you out if they have the opportunity. Uh, I certainly got that lesson. Welcome to the Budget-Minded Traveler podcast, your source for the everyday inspiration and practical tips that make international travel accessible to everyone. Hi, guys. This is the Budget-Minded Traveler podcast, and my name is Jackie Nurse. Thank you for listening. We are still in our series about guys who have hit the road solo, and today we get to hear from Casey Wong, who is a traveler that I actually met on the road last year when I lived in Argentina. We were connected through a friend whom you will recognize if you've been listening to the show for a while, Uh, so you'll get to hear that story in a minute. But if you liked the movie, The Motorcycle Diaries, hint, hint, I think you'll like today's topic because Casey, who had never even owned a motorcycle before, bought one and rode it all the way through South America. Yeah. So in this episode, we get into exactly how he got the bike to South America in the first place, what route he took, what challenges he faced, what he learned, what surprised him, and what he ended up doing with the bike in the end. So let's go ahead and get into Casey's story. All right. I'd like to welcome Casey Wong to the show. Casey, thanks so much for being here today. Where are you joining us from? Yeah, I'm really happy to talk to you today. Um, I'm in the South Lake Union neighborhood of Seattle, Washington. Are you originally from Seattle? Yeah, I am. Born and raised. Okay. And the reason that I wanted to talk to you today is because you took an ultimate epic adventure through Latin America on your motorcycle. And I'm really excited to talk about that. But actually, before we get into that, we should tell a fun story because the way that you and I met is one of those serendipitous travel stories that are my favorite. And so, so you actually ran into, and here's the other thing. My audience already knows Cody because she's been on the podcast before. Yeah. um, Episode 24, I want to say, but yeah, so you ran into Cody, like almost quite literally in some town in Ecuador, right? Yeah. So I took a, um, I was in Ecuador, yeah, and I was taking a really circuitous route to get to Kilatoa, which is... It's like a volcano crater lake, similar to the one we have here in Oregon. And I was looking for this hospital that I had heard about for months. And um, I was riding around the country out there, and I hadn't seen anybody on the street for like hours. And then I saw a short white woman, which is a pretty traveling hostel. Always a good time. Um, and I slowed down and said, hey, do you have any idea where this hostel is? It was Cody, and she happened to be staying at the adjacent hostel. Oh, uh-huh. So we ended up hanging out that evening, and she heard about the route I was taking down south. And you were in Bariloche at the time, I believe. Yeah, I was living in Argentina, right? Yeah, she she nearly demanded that um, I make a point to go see you all. Yeah, and so then, what? A couple months later, you ended up contacting me when you were coming through Argentina through Bariloche, and we got 
beers on the rooftop of your hostel. And that was cool. You like stayed right down the street from my house. (laughs) Yeah, you were just a couple blocks away. Yeah. And here we are uh, more than a year later getting to reminisce about that, which is always special. Yeah, it's great talking about travel stories. Yeah. And you know what? So you and yours is a story that I think from the moment I met you, I knew that I thought, you know, we got to tell your story because if anybody out there has seen the motorcycle diaries, then you'll appreciate the idea of taking a motorcycle and driving it through South America. Um, and so I want to know, like, what was, how about this? Let's start with, um, what was it that inspired you to go? And like, why did you know that you wanted to do it on a motorcycle and go by yourself, et cetera? What inspired the trip to begin with? Yeah, well, it surprised a lot of people to hear that I'm actually like not a motorcycle enthusiast at all. Um, in fact, I hadn't been on a bike <laughs> growing up at all. I think I rode a dirt bike once at summer camp, and I'm pretty sure I ran it into the trainer, and they, they told me I was done for the day. But I have a really good friend who ended up moving out to Southeast Asia and opening a uh, adventure motorcycle company that rented out dirt bikes uh, to people who wanted to travel through Laos and um, Thailand. So I flew out there and took a trip with him. And then I did it again in Nepal on these old Royal Enfields and just had an incredible time traveling there. Um, and it was, I, I traveled quite a bit. And that was the first time that I had had my own method of transportation, uh, which really changed the game from relying on buses and, and train schedules and planes. And it was also just really fun. And also terrifying, which kind of kept me on my toes. So years later, you know, my kind of impetus for this trip is not a surprise to a lot of people. Um, as a lot of great adventures start, it was heartbreak that had me thinking I needed to get out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I thought about where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do, I had this tickling feeling in the back of my head that I hadn't been there since I'd taken those trips to Asia, that it would be so great to go on a of an unhinged trip without um, too many destinations plotted out and no time that you need to be back by on a motorcycle. So I, after some planning, about six months of planning, um, I bought a bike and left, actually left from Seattle and ended up down in Patagonia, you know, near where I saw you. Mm -hmm. So amazing. So you actually started your trip in Washington and went all the way down to the, how far South did you get actually? You know, I was hoping to make it all the way down to Ushuaia, which mm-hmm. as you know, is kind of the end of the road in South America. It was snowing by the time I got down there. So uh, I ended up stopping at Puerto Natales, which is an area I really wanted to go to anyway. Cause it has a lot of fantastic hiking. Mm-hmm. For those of you who follow my trips, Puerto Natales is actually our, jumping off point for Torres del Paine, which is the, the W trek down way down in Southern Chile. It's, it's still very, very, very far down there. It might not be quite the southernmost city in the world like Ushuaia, but, uh, that's pretty, uh, impressive is the word I'm looking for. It's a very long road from, from Seattle down to Puerto Natales. Good for you. That's so crazy. You know, to be honest, I'm actually really glad that we're able to have this conversation because when you left, when you left Bariloche, I was, I was really, I was almost 
afraid for you. Just I've seen that Ruta 40, like Route 40 way down there, you know, and I know those Patagonian winds and uh, the roads. And I just I I was like, I really I just hope he gets there. I really hope that he gets there. That last stretch of road was not easy. Oh, I, I bet it was scary at times, too. I, I don't know how you don't fall over in those Patagonian winds. Yeah, well, um, you know, the wind comes over from the Atlantic uh, at like 50 or 60 miles an hour steadily with gusts up like 100 miles an hour over this Patagonian desert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're basically bracing the entire time. And when a gust of wind hit you, it could push you, you know, five or 10 feet either way on the road. Or when you pass the semi-truck and you enter the wind shadow, that was frightening. Oh, oh yeah. And then that area of the road that's unpaved, if you can remember it, I think it's about probably about 40 or 50 miles of it that's unpaved now. But the earth is like soft clay, mm-hmm. which is just not any fun to ride a motorcycle in. Oh, yeah, that's it's not something that I particularly am interested in, but it does make for a really cool story. And so um, so let's talk about that a little bit. So what ended up being your let's see, like your biggest challenges, I guess, uh, on the way? People expected that it was going to be unsafe. Um, They thought that I was going to be running into people who might mean to do me harm or take my stuff. Uh, or that I would get injured on the road because motorcycling is not the safest method of transportation. But I found what the real challenge was was more psychological. Um, I took this trip by myself, and I think I only ended up traveling with other people for maybe a total of two or three weeks that entire time. And how long was it? It was about eight months in total. Okay. And you finished last, what, May, right? Or Yeah, last May is when I got back. Okay, so it's been just over a year that you, so this took place within the last like year and a half. That's right, yeah. Okay, so two to three weeks with other people, mostly on your own, all right? Mostly on my own, yeah. So to kind of give you an overview of what the route was, I went from Seattle down to San Diego, across the United States to Miami, and then actually shipped my bike to Columbia. Oh, uh uh-huh, okay. Yeah, and then picked up from there and stayed on the western side of South America, going through Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and then I bounced back and forth between Chile and Argentina, then came back up to Santiago, sold the bike, and flew home. Okay. So I would go stretches without really talking to anybody. Some of the areas of Patagonia, some of the areas of Peru, um, I would be really off the beaten path for weeks at a time going between villages uh, of people who maybe just weren't that interested or maybe maybe a little intimidated by the guy showing up on a big motorcycle and (laughs) nearest hospital is. Yeah, I go days without talking to anybody. I'm a a pretty extroverted person, but I'm an extroverted person who does also appreciate my solitude. Uh, What I found to be the challenge is that this is a lot more solitude than than I maybe had anticipated. Yeah, it can be a lonely road out there for sure. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of by design. Um, I knew that part of the way I kind of coped with the heartbreak that was the impetus for the trip was by surrounding myself with friends, which was really great. But I knew that a lot of the kind of work I had to do to move on from it was in my own head and heart. And I knew that that uncomfortable space when you have um, you know some pain you're trying to work out 
you can avoid it and you can avoid it really well. So I figured that getting on a motorcycle and being in my helmet for many hours a day would be a, a, a way to kind of force the issue on myself. Mm-hmm. To, to deal with it and to process it. Yeah. Yeah. It, that works pretty well. Yeah. I, I believe it. I, there's really nothing in the world that I think works more like a mirror than solo travel. You know, I mean, you cannot help. I mean, you're by yourself. There's no one else to bounce your thoughts off of. And so the reflection is intense, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have yeah. experienced the same. So in fact, yeah, that in that when I ran into you, I was sort of on my own solo journey. So yeah, I, I definitely understand what you what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. What about, let's talk about a couple of the logistics because I'm just curious. I think it's a really good idea that you shipped your bike to Columbia because then you don't have to deal with the uh, overland. Well, it's essentially you wouldn't be able to go overland anyway. Uh, but getting from Central America to South America, you kind of skipped that part. And and maybe that was for time or just because that's what you wanted your itinerary to be. But what did that look like uh, actually shipping your bike from Miami? Like, how did you do that? And was it expensive? And where did you land? Like Cartagena or where did you go in Colombia? Yeah, let's get into the weeds here. Um, so originally, uh, obviously, like the romantic notion of riding from home all the way to the end of the road down south would suggest that I'd be on a bike the whole time and would be over land. Um, as you just mentioned, there is a stretch in Panama that is actually, there's no roads that go through it. A lot of people maybe haven't heard that before. And it's not the canal. There's a stretch of um, kind of guerrilla-controlled area that's about only 100 or 200 miles long, but uh, nobody can actually drive through it. So people who do these overland trips will head to the kind of the end of the road in Panama and put their vehicle, um, be it a motorcycle or otherwise, onto like a fishing ship. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's a really sketchy process. Uh, one of my friends who did something similar ended up stuck in a fishing town for three weeks, I think, oh. as they're as they're like wheeling and dealing with the different fishers. Yeah. Like one guy who actually got left on an island out there. Oh gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it sounded like great Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, oh my with his motorcycle on an island that was like an acre acre in size. Thankfully, he got off the island. Anyway, um, <laughs> thanks for adding that part. <laughs> right. The reason that I decided to skip it was that uh, first off, my Spanish was terrible. Your Spanish was terrible. Okay. And I wanted to kind of stay put for a while and give myself a chance to study it. And I wanted to do that in an area that I'd be interested in spending more time in. And I had heard for a long time that Colombia was really beautiful, um, pretty inexpensive, and that their Spanish was, like, people would say, uh, like, clean. Okay. And that's a great place to learn Spanish because uh, everybody in South America can understand Colombian. Yeah, like, the accent's a little bit easier to understand there. So, yeah. So, um I did a lot of research, uh, primarily using a website called adventurewriters.net. Adventurewriters.net, is that what you said? That's right. Okay. It's actually advwriters.net, um, which has a lot of great forums on it, and um, found some companies that specialize in like overland vehicle shipping. Ah, uh, okay. And you wouldn't think that there's a niche for that, but there is. And uh, I found one company in particular that helped out 
somebody on the forum with a contact. So the way it works is that I showed up to Miami. I had coordinated with that contact for the shipment. I believe the cost was somewhere between $800 and $1,100. And it fluctuated a bit because I ended up having to pay them to create my motorcycle. Um, they wouldn't let me do it myself. Oh, to pack it? You mean to like package it up? and? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I essentially dissembled it into its small pieces and then let somebody else put it in a crate, which is not something I was all about doing. And another thing people don't expect is that shipping via sea is actually more expensive than putting it on an airplane. So huh. my motorcycle actually went in a cargo airplane from Miami to Bogota. Wow. And that was less expensive than putting it overseas. Interesting. Um, and the other thing that the people, you know, um, stated very clearly on these forums, there's certainly a consensus about it, was that you introduce a lot of variables when you put a motorcycle on a container ship because of transit times, because of potential corruption at the ports. Um, airports are more highly regulated than seaports. Um, so I've, I've heard that you had to grease a lot more palms to get your uh, motorcycle back. And that if they miss um, a sailing, they might not catch it. Like my motorcycle missed um, flights for like five days. I don't really understand how that happened. But hmm. okay. to me, that was a five-day delay. But if you were sitting at the dock, expecting your motorcycle to show up and it wasn't on the ship, all of a sudden your entire trip is delayed potentially weeks Potentially weeks, right. Wow. Okay. So you put your bike on a plane and then you got on a plane. And then I got on a plane and flew down to Columbia. Ended up getting a little bit delayed. I think it was about a week to two weeks that it was delayed in total. And I got the bike out. Um, the great thing about this, this company that specializes um, in this service specifically is they also help you out with all of the regulations about getting your vehicle licensed in that other country that you're showing up to. Ooh, let's talk about that. Yeah, so they actually gave me somebody who went through all the customs paperwork with me even shoveled me between the different customs offices to make sure I was all buttoned up, uh, kind of held my hand through the inspections. I was nervous about it because that seems to be where you could really get um, hassled by government officials asking you for more than they should. Okay. Interesting. So you had to get it licensed for, for what? Like, what did that look like? What do you mean? You know, it's not all that dissimilar. If you can imagine, like, bringing a vehicle from, say, Canada to the United States. Mm-hmm. You get it registered in the country um, after a certain number of days. I essentially got like a temporary permit to have my vehicle in country. I think it was like 90 days, but it re-triggered when I went over borders. And most of South America actually has like a networked regular, like regulatory body that I think called SOTA. Called what? SOTA, that's an acronym and I don't remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> but once you get permitted into one of these, you can travel over borders. Um, there is like an additional process to, you have to have paperwork for the country that you're in. But once you're in one of those countries, the process is a lot easier. Okay. So did you only have to, you, you did the registering once in Colombia and then w- every country that you went to, or am I understanding that wrong? Border crossing. Um, and I would just kind of stop and do some research again on adventurewriters.net um, on what the, regulations were per country and they they were really detailed accounts on there like exactly what office what were to go to 
uh, what paperwork needed to be filled out. Oh, wow. Okay. All that, all that was already available. So that's a really, really good resource. We will definitely be putting that on the show notes page. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So then you're in Colombia, and uh, what was your journey like? I mean, what were, where did you stay and, and who did you meet? And, you know, like, what was it like? What were you looking for? What did you do? Columbia was uh, really remarkable. It was highlight of my time there. I actually ended up spending almost three months in Columbia. Um, it has a pretty negative reputation up here in the States, mm-hmm. or really across the West, including Europe, as kind of being the center of the cocaine drug trade. And it casts a pretty ugly shadow over a really beautiful country and really warm people. Uh, I felt safe the whole time I was there, um, barring one day when I accidentally rode into Gorilla Hell Mountain Territory. Whoops. Um, but other than that, like people are really, really kind, probably the warmest, uh, most hospitable people I've ever encountered in my travels. Hmm. I mean, folks would see me stop on the road looking at the streets and immediately offer assistance. They would jump in their own car and lead me to where I was going. <laughs> Reported, like invite me in their homes for meals. Um, There's one day when I was like, getting, I was lost looking for a, a friend's home, and three different people in this like two mile stretch of road offered me directions and then demanded that I stay with them for fresh squeezed juice on their porch. <laughs> oh, and I ended up hours late to my destination. <laughs> it's okay. It's worth it. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. So I mean, especially up here in Seattle, people can be a little. I wouldn't say standoffish, but they, they don't immediately welcome you into their community. Mm-hmm. And there, people are inviting me to their Christmas with their families after only meeting me for a day. Did you do so it? I, yeah, that, that was, that's why I was stopping for juice with all the family neighbors. That was uh, so you had Christmas with a random family in Colombia? Yeah. <laughs> that's so fun. Yeah. And I mean, another time I had my motorcycle in the garage to get some weekly maintenance done, and I ran into another guy with a motorcycle, and he was a Colombian guy. And he uh, and I chatted for 15 minutes, and then he said, you know, if you don't have any plans after you leave Medellin, which is where I was at the time, you should join me and my friends on this annual motorcycle vacation we take for a week. Um, and we're going like up into these mountains in eastern Colombia. Oh, man. So did you go? Yeah, I did. I looked at the conversation. You're inviting me on a vacation with your friends after a 15-minute conversation <laughs> a week? Yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Columbia is just remarkably beautiful. Um, you know, people expect, at least I did, that Columbia was just all jungles and super humid. Columbia has a like 19,000-foot peak on the, like, on the Caribbean, on the coast, like from a white sand beach, you can see like a glaciated peak. Wow. Man, just gorgeous. Um, it was really inexpensive. The food was great. People were great. Uh, they have a lot of history there that I didn't know about. The cities were much more modern. Um, they, they basically have every modern amenity I would expect in the state. And people are still really hopeful about um, being able to come out of a really rough um, stage of their history in the 90s mm-hmm. with their stuff. And there's just this energy about the entire country that um, I felt just kind of enraptured by. Oh, 
That's so nice to hear. Like, I definitely want to help spread that mes- message because I think people just, it, it, things have changed in Colombia and, and that's, that is the word on the street these days. And so safe travel there, you know, I haven't been there yet, but oh, I really want to go. It's really high on my list at the moment. Definitely should be on your list. Yeah. I almost went and spent a couple or a little, I don't know how long I was going to spend there this spring and my, and my plans changed, but that is still, I mean, I'm definitely, it's on my radar. It's going to happen one of these days. I cannot wait to explore Colombia. The word people use is just magical. Like it's one of those places. And I just, I have to go find out what that means. You know, it's. Yeah, you got it. I love it. So caveat I would put is that the writing in Colombia was also these areas that I went from like interstate systems in the United States to Colombia, where there's basically no rules of the road. Ugh, scary. And I actually like wrote a whole blog post about it because I was so stunned by it. It was, uh, I mean, there's 10 times more motorcycles on the road than there are in the States because it's just a less expensive way to travel. Mm. Cops don't really seem to care about enforcing rules. And it's an incredibly mountainous country. Like, I'm convinced that if you grabbed Columbia by the edges and spread it flat, that it'd be the size of the United States. <laughs> I like that analogy. Yeah. Like, just traveling from Bogota to Medellin is only like a 100 miles linearly, like as a crow flies. Yep. It's an eight-hour drive. Oh, my goodness. Because every road is just switchbacked up and down mountains the entire way. Oh, man. So it was exhilarating. It was a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. And I also feared for my life more, more <laughs> than, you know, in the, in the previous three months of riding I already had leading up to that. I bet. We're definitely going to want to link to that blog post on the on the show notes page. So, yeah, it sounds like Colombia was a pretty good highlight for you. And then you went into Ecuador or sorry, Peru or where were you going? No, you went the first time. Yeah. So I went south from there. To Ecuador. And I, when I left Colombia, I didn't really know the route I was taking. I didn't really have anybody to visit. I think I knew one person in Quito that I was going to try to see. Yeah, so I headed south. Um, I'd already traveled in Ecuador, so I was kind of prepared to move a little faster through there. I kind of chose early on to stick to the mountains because the riding was a lot more fun. And um, I had heard that it was really wet at the coast and riding in the rain is, is not any fun at all. So I stuck in the mountains, um, stopped by Kilatoa, um, stopped by another volcano up by the border of Colombia, headed south from there. I spent a few days in the city of, of Quito to kind of get my head on straight after being on the road for a while and then, and then headed south. Okay. Where did you stay? Were you mostly staying in hostels the whole way or did you try couch surfing? Did you try anything else? Yeah. Well, actually in Colombia, I uh, took Spanish classes for a month. Oh, what was it? Where? Can we link to that too? Because that's that's a good subject for people. Oh, that's... I wish I had that information in front of me. Maybe we... After the phone. Yeah, maybe we can find it and we'll put it on the show notes page if we can find it. Where did you stay in Colombia doing that? I stayed in Medellin. In Medellin, uh, okay. So I had uh, a lot of people who had traveled there and I met some other Colombians who suggested like go to Medellin. It's a really phenomenal city. People are really friendly. Mm-hmm. It's especially for somebody from the Northwest, perfect weather, 75 to 85 degrees every day. I hear really good things about that. I know there's a lot of expats that live in Medellin. So, yeah. 
I took classes uh, every weekday for four hours. Um, I took some salsa classes. I hooked up with couch surfers mm-hmm. uh, at, at different kind of meet and greet events. Yeah, I had a great time there. Um, and I actually got really randomly connected to somebody who had an empty room in an apartment. So I was actually staying in a Paisa's apartment. A Paisa is what people from Medellin call Paisa. Oh, yeah. Okay. People, people. <laughs> yeah, it's like country people. Yeah, pa- well, like paisano is someone from the country, so paisa is like a slang for that. Mm-hmm. So I led a really strangely like routine life for that month. Um, <laughs> I went into my class every day. I had like kind of my favorite lunch spots I went to. I had a couple like Colombian friends that I would meet up with for drinks, and, and they would practice English, and I would practice Spanish. Nice. Yeah, but your original question about where I was staying. Yeah, a third couch surfing, a third hostels, and a third camping. I actually I brought all my camping stuff with me. You fit your camping stuff on the bike then? I did. That, that part was it. So smart, though, because that really keeps costs down if you can camp. Yes, it does. And it makes you a lot more flexible. And as I was thinking about potential challenges of the trip, one of them, and, and scary challenges, one of them was uh, mechanical breakdown of any kind, mm. away from any kind of support or any people at all. Yeah, when you can't call AAA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, all my camping gear, I always had like a day's worth of food on me and a day's worth of water. That is so smart. I love that tip right there. Yeah. So, it's I mean, sort of like packing your carry on bag in case the airline loses your main luggage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so I only did it in emergencies, um, maybe once or twice. But yeah, having the camping spot there was great. Um, there was another great service I want to plug. It's an, it's an app on your phone called iOverlander. iOverlander. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's like a crowdsource camping information site where it superimposes like campsite information on a map. Um, it's all offline, but it's not like it's not from uh, the parks department of these different places. It's people who've stayed at wild campsites or private campsites, even people's backyards who said that they were cool with having an RV or, or some backpacker stuff in their backyard. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And they would just upload like GPS pins and write a few notes about it. So I had that on my phone. So um, I use that pretty often to, to find good campsites. Okay. Um, real quick. That's a really good tip. I just have one question about that. How did you use your phone? Were you going and getting SIM cards for each country? I did. Yeah. Okay. That's the cheap way to do it. And it is super simple. So as long as you have an unlocked phone, you can do it. Yeah. So for me, I think I had to pay like two or $300 to pick my contract and then I could miss them. And that was so cheap. You know, it was like five or $10 a month and I wasn't even thinking about data usage or anything like that. I love to hear that. Okay, cool. I'm going to just, I'll link to a post too about uh, SIM cards. Um, cool. Okay. So that is a great app. So you were doing camping, couch surfing and, um, and hostels. Um, what about like cooking and food and all of that? Were you trying to, were you trying to cook a lot or did you eat out a lot? Like what was your budget like? Yeah. Um, eating down in South America was really cheap except for Argentina. Yeah. Argentina is expensive. Sad. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I brought uh, camping food as much as I could when I knew I was going to be camping. I had abundant produce. There's basically fruit stands everywhere in these places where there aren't grocery stores. People are just setting up kind of 
produce stands on the street and in the town. And you could just stop the motorcycle, put on the kickstand, throw out a dollar, and get enough groceries for the night. Mm-hmm. I had a staple that I ate. Um, for those who don't know, Peru is actually where quinoa came from. So I had like quinoa by the pound in my uh, in my paneers, and I would just stop at a market and buy like an avocado and an onion and a tomato. And that would be enough for a meal, um, mm. given that it's, not, <laughs> it's mm. not a fancy one. You know, it fills you up fine. Um, I always carried whiskey, <laughs> mostly for emergencies, because after a scary situation, you need something to calm your nerves up. But yeah, eating was inexpensive. Um, Colombia, again, the food is phenomenal. Um, you would eat a meal for like 2 to $4, and it would be like a three-course meal. Wow. You could stop at basically any town or village and expect pretty good food. Mm-hmm. I brought a lot of instant coffee. Um, that was something I ached for by the end of the trip with a decent cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's so unfortunate, actually, that most of it's, it's a weird thing that most of South America uses instant coffee, too. It's so weird. The tragedy is every place that where the great coffee comes from, generally people don't drink it. They drink Nescafe. Nescafe is a thing in Spanish, like capital N Nescafe. Like everybody has it. Oh, so frustrating. Yeah, but you know what? It still wakes you up. So it still works. It works. Yeah. So um, as you got closer to the end, I I actually want to ask you about selling your bike. Um, if you want to maybe tell us a little bit about how that went, because A, how do you part with it? It's so sad. And then B, I know it was like kind of a logistical nightmare, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I could I could talk for days about this. So I'll make it brief. So first of all, I had a strong attachment to the bike, as you'd imagine. I mean, I spent like essentially half of my waking hours on it for eight months. Mm. Um, I also wanted to just drive it into the ocean and never see it again. <laughs> You know, it had left me stranded on the road enough times that I had resentment built up. Mm. Yeah, the process of selling it was a challenge. Uh, I posted on, let's see, klr650.net. I think that's the site that's specific for the motorcycle I was riding and um, adventure riders again. They have a for sale uh, section of those websites specifically for adventure uh, motorcycle riders. So people will actually fly all over the world after arranging a purchase of a motorcycle. They'll buy motorcycles from each other and just kind of pick up where the other person left off. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So um, it's a really incredible community. So uh, I had posted it probably two or three months before I expected to finish my trip and said, hey, I'm, I think I posted it when I was in Bolivia. And I said, I'm in Bolivia, I'm heading south, and I'm heading back north to Santiago. If you're anywhere in that area, I can be pretty flexible with like finding you so you can look at the bike. So I posted the bike, um, and a French guy found me in Mendoza. This guy named Piche was a French cook, and he had moved to Mendoza and was working as a cook. He had made an Argentine girlfriend down there, and he had this dream of riding his motorcycle riding a motorcycle up to Mexico. Oh, wow. So serendipitously, I happened to be in Mendoza when this guy messaged me. (laughs) 
of course. But I, you know, I'd love to see the bike. Are you going to be in Mendoza at any time in the next couple months? I wrote him back and said, I'm actually in Mendoza right now. And he said, you want to get a beer? So <laughs> Love it. Yeah, he actually ended up like making me dinner that night. Ooh, had, like, lucky a- you. Um, he gave me a deposit on the motorcycle and we arranged a time to meet um, in Santiago at the end of my trip. Amazing. All that part went pretty smoothly. The big challenge was like the bureaucracy of trying to sell a motorcycle outside of the country it's registered in. Oh. To another individual who's not a resident of the country you're in or the country you're from. Oof. Yep. Um, so um, that process was, uh, I think the technical term is a huge pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. I actually ended up mailing documents to my local Department of Licensing in Woodenville, Washington. Um, I spent hours on the phone with them to arrange it. I spent a lot of time researching it. Uh, I mailed them the documents back and forth. I had to get my dad to drive to the Department of License, pick up the new documents, and mail them to a friend I had in Chicago. Wow. Yeah, it was a very challenging process. And then when I actually was in Santiago and retrieved those the new paperwork so I could have the motorcycle license to the seller's name, they used the wrong license plate number on the paperwork. Oh and I was actually like doing this exchange the day I was flying home. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think half the gray hair on my head is from that day alone. Uh, oh. But um, I ended up being able to go to the customs office. And um, thankfully, you know, a Chilean customs official is not, like, is not familiar enough with Washington State's uh, licensing paperwork to really know what he's looking at. Um, so I was able to kind of BS my way through that exchange. Wow. All right. So you did it in the end. I did it. Yeah. A lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of time. Yeah. But one thing I would say to anybody who would be thinking about a trip like that is that American motorcycles, I, I mean, my bike is Japanese, the American registered motorcycles coveted um, because there's not really a market for adventure riding bikes for locals in a lot of the countries you want to travel to. So you can, some people actually make a profit on their bikes after spending a year on them, um, selling them to a country where there's just not enough of them. Okay, that's interesting. So even even with all the hassle that you went through, would you say that that's more worth it than, say, for example, shipping it home and just selling it back in the States? Yes. Okay. In my case, that was definitely the case. Um, okay. It would have cost me about 1500 or $2,000 to ship the bike home. I bought the motorcycle for around $4,000. So that didn't make it sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. There was a sentimental value. I, it would be great to have the bike that I rode across the Americas on, it wasn't that worth it. Um, so I ended up selling the bike for not a lot less than what I bought it for after putting a lot of miles on it mm-hmm. um, and was able to kind of wash my hands of it and walk away. Amazing. So what do you think were some of the biggest things that you learned from this trip? Um, you know, I, I generally have faith in people. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to go on the trip was that... Um, I really wanted to remind myself that people are generally good and want to help you out if they have the opportunity. Uh, I certainly got that lesson. I never had anything stolen, even. People were helping me on a Mm. daily basis, multiple times a day, um, without expecting anything in return. Um, That was incredible. And people's hospitality was was really inspiring and something that 
was a lesson that I really hope to live out um, now that I'm back home. Yeah, that's incredible to hear that you spent all that time on the road and that you had such a positive experience with all the locals. It's so encouraging, really. This might be a hard question, but how are you kind of taking what you learned and how you changed and grew on the road and making it continue now that you're at home? You know what I mean? Like, how are you still, how are you changed from it? There's two big things that I learned from the trip. One was people's general desire to help. Mm-hmm. That really changes the way I interact with everybody. Just to have that faith that all things being held equal, people rather help you than not. Mm, that's really nice. Uh, and then the other piece was that um, you know my life before I left on the motorcycle trip was was pretty regimented. Uh, I knew what I was doing on like a fifteen minute to half an hour basis throughout almost every day of the week. And I wanted to kind of put that upside down and see what life would look like and remind myself that you don't know what's coming around the corner. Mm. Um, and that's something that I find really hopeful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that, really. Um, and thanks for sharing your story. You know, I, mean, I think it's it's really encouraging. It's really inspiring. Some of the details that you shared, I think, will be really helpful. So, um so yeah, I'm really glad that you're able to be here. Thank you so much for for that. And uh, if if people want to follow you, where might they be able to find you? I'll put everything on the show notes page because I know that it might be a little bit more obscure since you don't have your own blog. But where where can we find you? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Jackie. It's an honor that you're even interested. It's not just me. You've got a great story. <laughs> <laughs> for, for anybody who maybe wants to know more about the trip or see some pictures, um, my Instagram handles. Casey Peter Wong, W-O-N-G. And there's a lot of pictures on there from the trip. And um, if they're interested in reading any blogs, I only wrote about 10 of them, but I spent a lot of time on them and tried tried to make them fun to read. I'm on Medium, um, so medium.com, and you can search my username, which is the same thing, Casey Peter Wong, without any spaces. Okay, I'm going to put those on the show notes page for sure. And I think we have a couple... Uh, posts that we're going to link to specifically. So great. Uh, well, thank you so much for that. Do you have any other big trips planned for the future? Well, what I didn't mention so far is that I met a lady on the trip. Oh, uh, okay, guys, settle in for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, I met her uh, in the Bolivian self flats. I, I haven't been there, but yeah. She's, she's British. She lives in London. Uh, her name is Clementine, so I've been going back and forth to London every month or two um, for the last year. Okay. That's not quite true, but I'm heading to London um, next week, and then I'm heading to Greece later this summer. Well, good for you. That'll do it. <laughs> wow, that's a fun twist to the story. I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. it. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much again, Casey, and um, best of luck with everything. And uh I hope that we can cross paths again sometime. Yeah. Well, next time you're in Seattle or next time I'm around the world and cross your path, we'll get another beer. That sounds great. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Casey. Talk to you later. Yeah. Thanks, Jackie. All right. I hope Casey's story was inspiring for you. As always, you can find the show notes with links to everything we mentioned today at thebudgetmindedtraveler.com slash 82. I have a fun episode with two very special guests coming up next. So thanks so much for listening today. I hope you stay tuned and I will see you in the next episode.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.